Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in the sin, to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them if a great millstone were hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. But if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to in, enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell, than with two hands to go to hell. It is unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you, for you to enter life lame than with two feet to thrown into hell. And if your eyes causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everybody will be salted with fire. God is salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for that you are a sovereign God over heaven and earth. Lord, we confess though at times we grow restless and our heart over, is overwhelmed with angst and worry and anxiousness. The anxiety mounts and we wonder, what are you doing, Lord? How long, O oh Lord, aren't you going to do something? Father, and we confess in those times, we need you more than ever. We need your Spirit to come to remind us that our God is good and that our God is sovereign. He's working all things according to the purposes of His will. To remind us that He is working all things according to His purposes for those who love God. To remind us our God knows what He's doing. He's not a novice. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are a good and gracious God. We thank You that when our politicians fail us, when our institutions are overwhelmed, when what we thought we could depend on fails us and betrays us, we can lift our eyes unto the hills and know our strength comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Because we belong to Jesus, we are secure. Our house is built upon the rock, and when the rain comes down and the flood comes up, the house on the rock stands firm because the rock is firm. Father, we come to you and we lift up uh, the congregation this morning. Father, there are many people that are not able to be here for various reasons, health and worries and COVID, and we are not whole without them. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be able to come together, and we recognize that that is something that day by day that can change. And Father, we pray that we would not grow apathetic and grow lazy and grow lethargic, but we would cherish every moment that we have to gather with your people, and we would long for the day when we can gather with your people. Father, we praise and we trust you in the midst of this pandemic, unrest, both in our nation, in our world, in our own hearts. Father, give us hearts that are joyful, 
knowing that the temporary blessings that you give and you take away are not the basis of our joy, but is the fact that we are blood-bought, um, that we children of the Most High God because of the act of redemption that was accomplished by Christ. And because we belong to Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Father, we cling to those promises now. Father, we continue to lift up Andy Rossi to us, to you, our brother who is struggling. Father, we love him, and as he says, I just want to be able to come home so I can help people. Father, may Andy's example for the past decades at our church, Lord, be an encouragement and an example to us. I pray for Steve Fuday for tomorrow as he has surgery on his ankle, Lord, that you would uh, preserve and protect him. I pray for the doctors uh, as they uh, work, that it would be successful. And I pray that Steve would trust you uh, in, as he recuperates. Father, I pray for every family, every individual. Lord, as we struggle to be faithful in the midst of this world. Lord, bind us together by your Spirit that is united us together as not only a local body, a covenant community, but as the greater body of brothers and sisters throughout this world, and not throughout this, just this world, but throughout the history of creation that will be called forth from the graves, and those that are living will, uh, that will meet you in the air, Father, and we will be with Christ. And death will be no more, and pain will be done away with, and God will dwell with his people. And we look forward to that day and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, may that keep our hope, encourage us, and strengthen us as we wait. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And God's, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we uh, finish up Mark chapter 9, we see uh, a time uh, in our, the church that we are in this past 2,000 years, we are in, uh, have a wartime mentality. I love uh, reading about uh, the World War II uh, and the, the steps that the people took to ration and to preserve what they had. Uh, I have Denise's grandfather, I have his old ration book for his days in Oklahoma, and that they would be able to go and buy their groceries and their food, and it reminds us of what it takes in the midst of a wartime mentality, the sacrifices that you have to make for the greater effort, the greater good that's going on around you, and for those of you who our boomers, you probably remember your parents telling you about what they had to do. I remember my grandmother telling me when I was a little boy and my grandfather what they used to do up in northern Maine during the war and the efforts they did while the GIs were overseas in the various theaters, what they would do back home as a part of the effort. And as Christians, we must realize that we are also living in wartime, and our mentality needs to be that. And it's not, um, we are not as Christians spectators of what's going on, but we're active participants furthering this battle between good and evil, light and darkness, the kingdom of earth versus the kingdom of heaven. 
And so I want you to see this morning as we open up the book of Mark that following Jesus demands radical action, not passive observation. Following Jesus demands radical action, not passive observation. And how do we do that? What is this radical action that Jesus teaches us this morning, that Mark, actually taking three accounts and common teachings of Jesus, knits them together this morning in a mosaic to teach us what a wartime mentality is, is A, protect the vulnerable, B, prune your heart, and three, pursue Christlikeness. Protect the vulnerable, prune your heart, and pursue Christ-likeness as we follow Jesus and, and with radical action, not passive obedience as we go. As we see the first one in verse 42, the first teaching of Jesus, it says, protect the vulnerable. Notice it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. When I grew up, and any of you who grew up in church, in most traditions, you remember the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. We often sang this as children. We sing it in Sunday school, and I know Miss Belinda and Miss Carol sing that as well. Uh, it's a song that we have, but gradually what happens is over time, we almost grow out of Jesus Loves Me. Because we think those little ones are just the little wee ones, the little rugrats in our pews, uh, and we grow up to be a more sophisticated Christianity. However, as we read through the text, and Mark is telling us the little ones are not just the children, though the children are included in that. These little ones are actually common, ordinary disciples, um, or as the Beatitudes say, the poor in spirit. Not the big marquee names, not those with clout, not those with great credentials, not those with multiple degrees and letters behind their name and, and titles before their name, but common, ordinary disciples. Jesus is more concerned about the fragile faith of the humble, a.k.a. little ones, than the fragile egos of the prideful. There is no room in the kingdom of God for spiritual pride that not only that puffs one up, but damages the faith of the little ones who belong to Jesus. Jesus, remember, we had to remember that the, how this fits in the mosaic that Mark is, is painting earlier, a couple of my sermons ago, probably about a month ago, we see in verse 36, it says, Jesus was giving the measure of greatness in the kingdom of God. Notice what he says in verse 36. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, the disciples. This is right after John had, was trying to puff up his credentials and trying to get a, a place of honor. And taking him as, in this child in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives um, and it receives not me, but the one who sent me. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not great theological prowess or mighty deeds or religious devotion. Greatness in God's kingdom is humbly serving the humble. 
And in our text this morning, Jesus raises the ante. He puts all the chips on the table and says, greatness is not just humbly serving the humble, but to damage the faith of the humble, the little ones, those who have tender consciences, those who have a weak, uh, new faith, the, the saplings in the faith, if you will. To damage the faith of the humble is a sin that will reap an unspeakable judgment and wrath of God. So much so that Jesus says it would be better for you to tie a millstone, which could be anywhere from 100 pounds to 1,000 pounds, around your neck and throw yourself into the heart of sea, of the sea to die a dark and unspeakable death than to face the wrath of God for damaging the faith of the little ones that belong to Jesus. Ocean Park, I want you to be warned, and this should sober us, that God's wrath is staunchly opposed to every form of spiritual pride in thought, in word, and in deed. But sadly, the toxic fumes of spiritual pride often um, seep into the church, into the pews, into the hearts of Christians or so-called Christians, of those with good theology that's not connected to their heart, but it's an empty theology because it is not connected to uh, love and service and humility. It's simply a form of spiritual pride, a.k.a. the Pharisees. And again, I've said before, when we read through the gospel, we often associate ourselves with the prodigals, with the the sinners, with those. But often we should associate ourselves with the Pharisees who, trying to be biblical, completely miss the mark because their hearts were tainted and twisted by spiritual pride. Pride has no place in a heart that belongs to Jesus, and especially in the forms of self-righteous pride that either overtly or, um, or, not, or inside says, if you don't act like me, think like me, vote like me, or have the same conviction as me, you're not worthy of following Jesus. This is the poison of the disciples and of the Pharisees that Jesus has already rebuked John for it, and he's already rebuked Mark, uh, um, Peter for it. It's an elitist, superior attitude that you have arrived, and because of your theology or your experience, Experience or your lineage or your history or your membership or the pew that you paid for or sit in all the time and scare people away because that's your pew and you don't want people near it. But it's that, it's that pride, that elitist attitude that holds others in contempt and sees them as inferior whether that's explicitly said with snide remarks and turning up your nose at those people or it's an attitude inside that you don't always know why you feel the way you do, but deep down inside, if you're honest and repentive, it's a form of spiritual pride that all of us struggle with. Because all of us, the root of evil is pride. Not living and doing, uh, for, uh, living for God's glory in the world that he has made, but living for our own glory. That's the spiritual pride. And we expect everybody to do it our way. Or we demand and pompously say, I did it my way. 
a la Sinatra. It may, this spiritual pride may manifest itself in vain narcissism, cold skepticism, petty criticism, or an unforgiving spirit. Ocean Park, how do you treat those who have a weaker faith? Or how do you treat new believers who don't know what they don't know? Or how do you treat those whose faith is vulnerable or shaky? It matters to Jesus how you treat his little ones. For they are weak and he is strong. And his wrath will be poured down on those self-righteous religious people who do not have a place in the kingdom of heaven, but are hurting those little ones that belong to Jesus. Do you hold weaker believers at arm's length until they get their act together, until they figure out where to find the hymn in the, pu- hymn in the hymnal or the verse in the, in the Bible? What about your Facebook? What about your Instagram? What about your Twitter? Is it a place that uplifts Christ? Is it a place of encouragement? Or is it a place of pride, of scorn? of antagonism towards anyone who is not in lockstep with all that you believe? Do you quote Scripture chapter and verse, but you harbor an unforgiving spirit, a harsh temper, or a spirit of contempt? It matters to Jesus how you treat His little ones. The call to follow Jesus is a call to protect the vulnerable by emulating the humility of Christ and serving the least of these with love and patience and self-sacrifice, and by bearing with one another's weaknesses, and being aware of other sensitivity. Jesus calls his disciples to a radical self-sacrifice so his little ones are safe. Ocean Park, are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to work to protect the vulnerable, the little wee ones in our pews, but also those new believers and those tender consciences and those that are are sensitive. Are we compassionate like Jesus? Are we harsh and gruff and prideful like the Pharisees? I pray that we would be a place in a church in a community where grace overflows and kindness is the way that we love well are the little ones. Because following Jesus... Following Jesus demands radical action, not passive observation. Not only are we called to protect the vulnerable, we're called to prune our own hearts. Another song that we sing with the children is, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. The Father up above is looking down with love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. And for those of you who know, we keep singing, okay, for little hands, for little feet, little heart, and any other appendage that you want to sing, just plug it in there. Uh, but we realize that this is um, a call and a song that is teaching us that every aspect of our experience and our being is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't get our heart, and then maybe the rest of us. Jesus gets all of us. And we realize that our hands and our feet and our eyes are really the summation of our experience as Christians. And all of those play a part. The physical plays a part in the spiritual. What this, um, it does not reflect is the radical nature of the Lord's, uh, Christ's Lordship. Maybe Miss Carol can sing with the children, be careful little hands where you go. If you, if you sin, cut your little hands off. Maybe Miss Carol, do you think that sounds good? No, see, maybe we'll keep working on that. 
But Jesus says, literally, um, to cut off your body parts that are leading you to sin. Now, he is speaking metaphorically, but he says this. Um, that if your hand, notice verse 40, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's speaking literally, uh, but we are to understand this metaphorically. We, uh, and, and often you see this where Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Sometimes the disciples will be like, finally, you're speaking non-metaphorically. But Jesus doesn't want us to maim ourselves. We see some church fathers that did that because they struggled with sin. But um, maiming our bodies does not change this heart that, our heart problem. We need to prune our heart, which is where the sin comes from, that like a gardener prunes a tree. Uh, Crosby and Andrew and I recently pruned our crepe myrtle in the front, and I asked Crosby, I said, how do you think the tree feels right now when we're cutting off all the branches? And he said, it probably doesn't feel really good. And the tree doesn't understand what's happening because we're cutting lots of things and we have a big pile. But why are we doing this? To hurt the tree? No, to make the tree stronger and grow truer and fuller and straighter. And this is what Jesus calls us by the power of the Holy Spirit to also do. That to prune away the areas of sin in our life. Because if we refuse the pruning of Jesus, we will become comfortable with the uh, comfort of sin. And it will lead us to the torment of hell. Notice at the end of verse 43, it's hell, literally Gehenna. It was a valley of Ben-Hinnon where uh, back in Old Testament times that they would sacrifice their, uh, this is not the Israelites, but the pagans would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. And then as New Testament times, it became a garbage dump where literally in Gehenna, they would burn the garbage day and night and that you would see the flames and the smoke in this area. And Jesus says, quoting Isaiah 66 that, um, that Steve read for us, the fire is not quenched and the worm is not extinguished. And you see this, that Jesus warns us three times that the enduring pain of pruning now and today is better than the pain of hell for eternity. Notice at end of 43, it's better for you to enter life crippled than uh, have two hands go to hell. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. And this is a sober warning to Christians to take sin seriously. Kent Hughes, a retired pastor, he was in Wheaton, Illinois at College Church, wrote it this year. He says, what Jesus is calling for us is not physical mutilation to literally uh, maim ourselves, but spiritual mortification. By cutting off harmful practices from one's life, the hand, the feet, the eyes encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do, the feet where we go, the eyes what we see. 
Jesus' logic is impeccable and compelling. It is better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial than go bearing your sins to an unending hell, Gehenna, an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worm eternally gorged themselves on the refuse of your life. Any sacrifice, any discipline, any self-denial is worth it. This, these words, as Jesus speaks, should be sobering to us. Because we cannot allow anything, whether it is a good thing, a blessing, or a bad thing, to keep us from following Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. And I call you to examine your life for anything that threatens your allegiance to Jesus. Men, are you willing to pluck out your eyes? Will you get a flip phone or put a porn blocker on your phone to prevent you from watching filth on your phone and your computer that objectify women and rot your soul? It is better to enter heaven without an iPhone than to go to hell with porn. Women, are you willing to cut off your hand? Are willing to cut off the relationships that you hold tightly but are leading you to compromise and complacency? Are the things that you cling to um, causing you to uh, sin, to grow in your life, or are they causing you to become more like Jesus? It's better to enter heaven without that relationship than to go to hell with them. And everyone, are you willing to cut off your feet? Are the places that you're going causing you to be more like Jesus and making you a better servant of Christ? Are the places you frequent setting a good example to Christ's little ones and causing you to desire Christ more? It's better to enter heaven without experiencing those places than to go to hell with their memories. Jesus tells us it is better to accept rigorous discipline now than to be punished for eternity. Following Jesus, brothers and sisters, demands radical action, not passive observation. We're called to protect the vulnerable. We're called to prune our hearts. And we're called to pursue Christ-like. Notice in verse 49 and 50, for everyone who will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the ancient world, salt had many functions. It was used to preserve and it was used to purify. And Jesus promises that his disciples will experience the refining fire of suffering and difficulty, but it won't be in vain. It has purpose. It is to make them distinct from the world. How we endure our blessings and our difficulty will make us distinct in this world. The refining fire of self-sacrifice on behalf of a, a weaker brother and sister will protect the vulnerable and make us stronger and the church stronger. The struggle of self-denial to put away sin will serve as a preserving agent in our life and it will bring peace where we go. It'll make us distinct in a world that is rotting and decaying by the power of sin. It'll be a preserving agent where we go. When we think, how can we help the weak? How can we cut off and, and work towards Christ-likeness and, 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 uh, and holiness? Every struggle and sacrifice that we experience that purifies our sin sets us apart in this world as salt. 
Christians are called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus tells us. In a world that is suffering decay and rot because of sin's hostility and corruption, following Jesus is not a spectator sport. It's a daily battle to put the poison of sin and pride and the sinful flesh to death that we may become more like Jesus, that we, where we go, may be salt, that we may be light in the darkness, may we be a preserving agent the more that we struggle to refine our faith and endure and show that in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties that Jesus is more glorious than what we have lost and what we don't have and what has been taken away shows to the world that Jesus is valuable and it is salt in a world that that is dying because of sin. Kent Hughes again says this, whatever or wherever we are, whether in the military or in business, in education, on a campus, Christ calls us to have a preserving influence. Our pre- presence ought to quicken the conscience, elevate conversation, restrain, restrain ethical corruption, promote honesty, and raise the moral atmosphere of the society. What happens when we get to know people who are without Christ? Does our presence make a difference? Are we operating in this world out of humility and compassion for the loss or spiritual pride that sees anybody that doesn't look like us, that doesn't vote like us, that doesn't have our same moral, that we come on down like a hammer? It's not the way of Jesus, though Jesus spoke truth articulately and strongly, but he had compassion Are you pursuing, Ocean Park, Christ-likeness that you may be salt? Are you using your struggles and your difficulty and your pain to purify your faith and magnify Christ? Are you wasting time with grumbling and self-pity? Is your life distinctively bringing peace with those around you? Or are you just like everyone else, yelling and screaming at one another? I pray that we would be salt that we would follow Jesus speak, uh, out of, with radical action, not passive observation, that we would protect the vulnerable, that we would prune our heart from sin, and that we would presume Christ-likeness, that Christ may be glorified in our life. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we need you this morning. In a world that is turned upside down, in a world that is not the way it should be, we pray that we would be faithful to protect those that are weak, to have compassion on the lost, to be a salt and a light in a world that is dark and that is dying. Father, make us like Jesus. Give us your spirit to guide us and to convict us and to equip us and give us the gifts that bring us, elevate Christ and make us more like Jesus. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.